And the same thing happens spiritually. God uses stress tests to evaluate and exercise the faith of his people. And the main point of God's stress tests is not particularly that he needs to learn where we're at spiritually, because you know what, he's God, he already knows, right? But the purpose of these tests, I believe, is for us, that he might show us where we are spiritually. And he uses those tests to push our limits, to help us grow and to help us bear fruit. And in our text this morning, we find the Lord Jesus exercising the faith of his disciples, especially of Peter. And the Lord shows them who they are in their weaknesses and in their doubts and in their fears. But most of all, he shows them who he is in his power, in his goodness, in his faithfulness. And we'll see the faith of the disciples is going to be exercised in a number of different ways. A number of interesting circumstances here. Going back to the beginning, Jesus has just finished a busy week of ministry. His own disciples have come to him with the news this day that his good friend, John the Baptist, has been beheaded in prison. He's dead. And Jesus is grieved. He needs to get alone to express his grief and to call out to God. And so he commands his disciples uh, and himself. He gets in the boat and they row off to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to try to get some solitude. And what happens? The crowd sees them take off. The crowd assumes and knows where they're going. So the crowd tries to head him off at the pass, goes around the, uh, the, the Sea of Galilee, uh, runs around to the other side, and when Jesus arrives on the other side, instead of peace and calm and solitude, he sees a crowd that's anxiously awaiting him. And what does Jesus do? Does he say, oh man, well there goes my day, right? Does he turn around and go back to the other side to avoid the crowds? Does he stay out in the middle of the ocean to get some peace and quiet? No, Jesus sees the crowd and he has compassion on them. And he begins to teach them. He begins to heal their sick. And he performs a miracle. He feeds them 5,000 people, over 5,000 people, with merely five loaves and two fish. A miracle. So he's just finished this busy time of ministry. And now, now he needs to just get away and take some time apart to talk to his heavenly father. And you know what? This really expresses, this really shows us the true humanity of Jesus Christ. That he needs, he was fully human. He needed rest. He needed solitude. He needed the comfort from his heavenly father. So he dismisses the crowd in verse 22. And he even dismisses his disciples. And they're told to get into the boat and head off to the other side without him. And I don't think they really wanted to, but verse 22 tells us that Jesus made them do it. Now, then in verse 23, 
Jesus goes alone to a nearby mountain to pray. And he's there from the time the sun sets until the fourth watch of the night, which is probably about three o'clock in the morning. And so I wonder, why is Jesus doing this? Why is Jesus forcing his disciples to go off in the boat alone? Well, Jesus is commanding them, for one thing, to obey his commands even when they don't want to, even when they don't see the need of obeying his commands. Because it's important that they understand obedience to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The disciples don't know, in this case, why Jesus is commanding them to go out into the boat. And we don't often find out ourselves, right? Today, when, G when God puts us through various trials, when God puts us through situations, we don't often know why we're going through them. We don't often find out until later, maybe even afterwards. After God has finished his work in us, we find out. And it's an evidence that we're one of God's children when we learn to receive his will as more important than our own without necessarily knowing why. And that's one of the reasons why the military has boot camps. You know, I was in the U.S. Marines for about five years, went to boot camp. And if you would visit one of those boot camps, and you really can, um, you would think, wow, that's harsh. Some of the things they do, it's pretty harsh. It's pretty mean. You would think maybe pretty terrible, the things they put these recruits through. But in reality, that is necessary. Right? Do you know what boot camp is? What, what the role of boot camp is? The role of boot camp is to get you to learn the habit of unquestioning obedience. Because on the battlefield, you can't have an every man for himself mentality. That's a recipe for disaster in war. So you need to learn to follow the orders of your superiors immediately. And only then can a fighting force be a fighting force. And spiritually, all the disciples and all of us as children of God need to learn by instinct to obey the commands of our Lord. That's not an easy lesson to learn, to tell you the truth. And that's why, just like the military, just like military boot camp, a crisis is often needed to get us to obey under stress, to teach us to obey under stress. See, you can't have a boot camp where everybody's sitting around in deck chairs drinking their macchiatos or whatever else it is, right? At least that's not my experience, um, because there's no more stressful situation than in a battlefield. And if you've learned the lessons of obedience only when everything is clear and calm and peaceful, well then, that's not going to do you much good when the stress comes, the stress of battle comes upon you. And that's why the military trains you, trains you under stress, great stress, to learn those things. And the spiritual battle that the disciples are going into as they're sent into all the world uh, as witnesses, that battle, that battle is going to stretch their faith. And they need to learn now 
how to obey unquestioningly, even when everything seems to be going wrong. And so Jesus creates this stress test by sending the disciples into the boat alone. Of course, he knew what was going to happen. And they go out into the boat. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 tells us this. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. In fact, the Sea of Galilee, Galilee even today, is known for its violent windstorms that come up uh, very suddenly. And the wind is blowing against the disciples and against their boat so that their sails become absolutely worthless. And they had to row. In fact, if you, we're not going to turn there. If you, look, if you were to look in Mark chapter 6, you have a parallel passage here of the same event. Uh, if you compare that to what it says in Matthew, there are a couple of extra details that we don't see here in Matthew. Mark 6 and verse 46 puts it like this. They were straining at the rowing. So they had to row. They had to row hard. They had to wrestle and labor, straining with those muscles as hard as possible for hours on end. And hours later, they've made very little progress. But they don't give up. You know, they don't turn around and head back to where they came from. Wait for better weather. You know, Jesus has commanded them to leave immediately for the opposite shore, and they do just that. They obey. And again and again, that boat is lifted up on the waves. It's pushed forward, and it's slammed into the following wave, which pushes them back. Often as they're straining as hard as they can together on the oars, a big wave comes, and it pushes them right back to where they were, right back to where they started. Then they feel like they're hardly moving at all. Now, let's just stop there for just a minute. You know, God still has his ways of administering his stress tests to us today. And sometimes it happens not because you're being disobedient, but particularly because you're being obedient. Did you know sometimes obedience makes life harder rather than easier. And God does that on purpose. He creates a crisis, or he sends in his providence circumstances where you seem to be tossed up and down on the waves of life. And whether it's sickness, or a material loss, or the opposition of others, or whatever it is, he brings you into an overwhelming situation where you feel like your life is just being slammed into one wave after the other. And you feel like you're straining at the oars just to go in the direction that God wants you to go. Hey, listen, if you're a believer, don't be surprised when storms come into your life. Nothing strange is happening. Not even when those storms come particularly to the obedient. God hasn't forgotten his promises. And he rules over every 
slamming wave. And you know what the comfort is when you come to a crisis like that? When you come to a storm? You know, the disciples could say as they strained at the oars, we are exactly where the Lord Jesus Christ commanded us to be. We're in the center of his will, and because we're obeying his voice, we can depend on his help. And the disciples may not have known the next detail, but we do. Now, where was Jesus? Where was Jesus when they were rowing all these hours, toiling in the waves. Mark 6, again, tells us that Jesus saw them from the sea, from the hillside. Now, do you think in all his prayers during that night, during those hours that his disciples were forgotten in their danger? If Jesus, in all his weariness, in all his humanity, can have compassion on, uh, uh, on the 5,000 people who came to see him when he was desperately tired, can he not have compassion on his disciples who are out there on the sea struggling at the oars? And still today, when God brings his people into a storm, we have a praying high priest who always lives to make intercession for us. And he is watching carefully, especially when in his providence, he brings the storm. And his compassion and his prayers always go hand in hand with his storms. And so what should we do? What should we do when we're in the middle of a storm? Well, we should remember that the one who sent us is watching and praying for us. And we can carry on. And we can toil at the oars. We can row even when the going gets tough, even when we think we're not getting anywhere. We can trust him. But really, this is only the start of Jesus' exercise of the disciples' faith. Even though they could already take comfort in the fact that it was Jesus who sent them into the storm, they still don't see everything about the Lord Jesus that he means for them to see through this storm. And therefore, Jesus himself comes to meet them, and in doing so, he'll stretch their faith even more. In verse 25, we see Jesus coming to meet the disciples in a way that reveals most clearly that he is also fully God. It says this, now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples see Jesus walking on the water, that's the last thing they expected. And even though Jesus is in all likelihood wearing the very same clothing he wore when he sent them off, they don't recognize him. Because after all, who would expect this? No human being can walk on the waves. And the disciples in verse 26, verse 26 tells us they were troubled and that they cried out for fear. See, the wind and the waves, they know, 
But who is this walking on the waves? I guess I would be just as scared if I were in the boat there with him. And the only conclusion they can come to, the only thing they can think of that makes any sense to them is that this is a ghost. Now, why does Jesus do it this way? Now, couldn't he simply have appeared in the boat suddenly? Sometimes he's done that without all the water walking. But he approaches them deliberately this way so that his power and his greatness are emphasized in the greatest possible way. And the disciples feel like something supernatural is going on, that they're in the presence of someone who is extremely powerful. And they feel small and fearful. And you know why that's important? Because great faith, strong faith, doesn't come from any kind of greatness within our own hearts. Great faith is only possible when you encounter a great God. A God who does the impossible. A God who holds all things in his hands. And if you want to have strong faith, you need to know Almighty God. But that's the first part of their stretching of their faith. The second part of the stretching of their faith is they have to recognize Jesus. They need to make a connection now between the Jesus they know and love and this Jesus whom they've not yet known this way. And that's why verse 27 says that as soon as they start screaming out in fear, Jesus responds, what's the word? Immediately. Immediately. And he comforts them. He comforts them with words like this. Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. But the key part here comes in those middle three words. The words, it is I, our translation says. But Jesus is speaking words that in the Greek are translated this way. I am. This is the first time in the Gospels that he speaks these words about himself. But this is also the same name Jesus used of himself in John chapter 8, verse 58, for which the Pharisees took up stones to stone him with. They knew what he was saying. And when Jesus says to his disciples, I am, you know what he's saying? He's saying, I am God. I am the almighty God has come to the disciples. He's come to meet them on the water and they have every reason to take heart and not to fear. They have every reason to stop being terrified because the same Lord who rules the waves and the storm is their God whom they've already come to know and love. It is he who's coming to meet them on the waves, and their trembling hearts can be replaced with joyful courage. So when we're in a storm brought about by our own obedience, 
when there are storms and circumstances brought about by God himself, we don't need to fear. We can look for Jesus to reveal himself in ways that we've never seen him reveal himself to us before or in a deeper way. And no matter how stormy it gets in our life, even when it seems like uh, like we're all on our own struggling against the waves, we are never alone. We have a praying high priest who is always watching out for us. And through the trial, he'll enable us to see his greatness. He'll enable us to see his goodness. And we'll realize that the waves that toss us back and forth are no obstacle to him. And he meets us there right among the waves. And he encourages us not by making the storm stop right away. Oftentimes he doesn't, does he? But by comforting us right in the middle of the storm. And notice in our passage, the waves don't stop, do they? Uh, they don't stop their dashing, and the wind doesn't stop its howling, at least not yet. The Lord still needs to use these waves to kind of stretch the faith of disciples a little bit more. And in verse 28, we find out why. Because Peter opens up his mouth. And Peter goes from terrified screaming to bold bravado in a matter of moments, kind of typical of his character, from uh, the mountaintop to the valley, from one extreme to the next. And out comes this bold request from Peter in verse 28. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, at the heart of this whole request, I know we like to give Peter a bad rap sometimes. But you know what? At least he had the faith to step out, all right? And Peter does just that. Imagine the faith it would have taken. And at the heart of this whole request is something praiseworthy, love for the Lord Jesus Christ and a desire to be with him. And the bold request and the lesson that is going to follow here will expose weaknesses in Peter that Peter didn't even know he had. And so Jesus speaks one word of permission and command in verse 29. He says, come. You can imagine Peter saying to himself, oh boy, I don't know what I've gotten into here. But at the end of verse 29, it tells us this. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. How many people have walked on the water? He gets a bad rap, but imagine the faith that Peter must have had just to step out of the boat, just to take those first few steps on the water. It must have been some great faith. Peter can do the impossible, but it's not in his own strength. It's through Christ which strengthens him. Now, wouldn't it be great just to stop right there? Should we stop? Stop on a high note? But I think verse 30 forces us to go on by starting like this. But, you know, with us poor, weak, sinful people, there's always that but, isn't there? As long as Peter kept his eyes focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, his, health, his faith held strong. 
He could walk across the waves as well. But suddenly out of the corner of his eye, verse 10 or verse 30 tells us this. He saw that the wind was boisterous. So Peter sees the wildly dashing waves. And Peter is an experienced fisherman. He knows what wind can do. He knows how dangerous rough seas can be. And instead of a heart filled at that moment with encouragement and trust in Jesus' word of permission and his command, instead of trusting that very same Jesus who commanded him to step out of the boat and who gave him the ability to walk those first few steps on top of the water, instead of that, he begins to fear. Verse 30, he was afraid. Then the storm becomes a storm again. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. How true to life. How true to life. You know what? Sometimes there's only one step for us between the mountaintop and the valley below. And that one step's a huge cliff. <laughs> you know, Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. So why is he allowing Peter to waver? Why is he allowing Peter to start sinking? Because Peter and the disciples and you and I today need to learn this part of the lesson too. When it comes to stretching our faith. You know, it's one thing to be full of Christ and therefore doing the impossible in his strength. And it's a whole nother thing to be full of ourselves. And how quickly our hearts turn from confidence in God to self-confidence. Now, is that what happened to Peter? Uh, well, we don't know. We're not sure, but it does happen to us, doesn't it? It's what, happens instead of, uh, what, uh, it's what happens when instead of focusing on Christ who is in me, I focus on myself or I look around and uh, the strength I had, I see the situations, I see the problems, I see the tribulations, and the strength I had in Christ just kind of melts away. I take my eyes off him and the wind and the waves start terrifying me again. And I have to cry out, Lord, save me. I'm weak. And Peter had to learn, as we all do, that we are not strong in ourselves. You know, great faith. Great faith is great confidence. But it's not in us. It's in Christ. It's the Lord and the Lord has to let us feel our weakness sometimes in order to keep us focused on him and full of him. To lean and to trust him. But then we read for a second time in the text. It's this one little word. Immediately. Immediately. In verse 31 we read, And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. You know, that probably means Peter was pretty close to the Lord Jesus Christ before he started to falter. He may have been a step or two away when he started to sink. And still, 
Peter doubted. Jesus doesn't let Peter sink all the way up to his neck as if to teach him a lesson, right? Jesus helps Peter the moment he starts sinking and the moment he calls out to Christ for help. Peter lost sight of Jesus' power. Peter lost sight of Jesus' goodness for just a moment in the tumbling waves, but Jesus didn't lose sight of Peter. And Jesus is so gentle and timely and faithful. The Bible says he knows our frame. The scripture says he knows we are dust. But that doesn't mean Peter's blameless. In fact, Jesus has to rebuke Peter here. He says this, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Is your faith that small? Didn't I command you to come? Didn't I help you during those first few steps? Peter, you think I would just let you go halfway? So do you think Peter let go of Jesus' hand after that? Probably not. I think Peter had a tight hold of Jesus' hand all the way back to the boat. And that's where we're in the best place spiritually. When our total confidence, our total trust, our total dependence is placed on Christ. And when you walk with God this way, not only does Jesus stretch your faith, but he finishes that spiritual exercise by stirring up that faith into worship. Verse 32 says this, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Finally, finally the storm's over. The wind has ceased. Jesus has taught his disciples everything he wants them to learn in this particular story. And the storm stops, and all there's left is a gentle, mighty Savior and some awestruck disciples. And the only thing they can do at this point, at this moment, they do it. For the first time in the Gospels, we read in verse 33, that the disciples as a group Worship Jesus. They fall on their faces and with awe in their voices they say, Truly, you are the Son of God. And here's the real secret. Here's the real secret behind great faith. You know, great faith is never a reflection of great people. Great faith grows when we realize that we're just poor, weak sinners in the presence of a great and a good and a faithful God. And you know what that means? That means people like you and I can have great faith as we place our faith in the right place, as we place our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But rest assured, God's going to test it. God will test that faith through storms, but oftentimes it's the only way he can really reveal the condition of our hearts, the condition of our faith. And it's the only way he can aid us in growing that faith. 
So don't be surprised. How's your heart today? How are you reacting to trials, tribulations, and storms in your life? I hope we can all say from the heart, thank you, Lord, for the storms. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, which is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to earth, Lord, to die on a cross, yes, to save us from our sins, to, to solve our most serious trial, our most serious problem, the problem of sin. But Lord, he also lived that life to give us an example to live by. We thank you for this story. For Lord, we can relate. We can relate to the disciples. We can relate to their fear and their distress, their unbelief. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us when we are anxious. Forgive us when we lack trust. Forgive us for our unbelief. Lord, help us to know that the storms in our life are nothing new. Lord, they are necessary for us. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us instead of grumbling and complaining about the things sometimes that come into our lives that we can say from our hearts, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the storms. Thank you for these opportunities to see where I'm at spiritually. Thank you for these opportunities to grow in my faith. And, Lord, may I grow in my trust for you, my confidence in your love, in your gentleness, in your goodness, in your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for the storms. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for that encouragement, Pastor Paul. And as we turn our attention to the Lord's table, we're reminded that we follow a Savior who has gone before, who has experienced the greatest of trials and tribulations. And so um, we're going to sing a hymn, Carol, um, Who is He in Yonder Stall? It begins with the birth of Christ, but it continues to uh, talk about His life and ministry and sacrifice on our behalf, which is the very purpose that it is coming to begin with. So I'm going to invite you to sing with me the first four verses of this storytelling carol and then we'll sing the fifth verse after we've observed the lord's table together we'll ask our men to prepare as we sing please stand with me let's sing 